Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Africa and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Catastrophe, What Went Wrong in Zimbabwe, and its author is Richard Bourne. In 1980, Zimbabwe seemed to have so much going for it after full independence under black majority rule, but 20 years later, it was a failed state. There was violence, hyperinflation and massive outward migration. So what did indeed go wrong? I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, joining me here uh, after a very lovely sunny day here in London uh, is Richard Bourne, the author of Catastrophe, What Went Wrong in Zimbabwe. Uh, hello. Hello. <laughs> now, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a sobering book that you've written, I've got to say. Uh, we all know the story of what was happening in, in Zimbabwe over the last few years. It's a story of hyperinflation, violence, uh, and a country that's basically turned itself into a failed state. But what your book seems to be about is, is explaining how it reached that point, because obviously it had a troubled colonial history, but then in 1980 there was such promise. And for, in, for it to go in 20 years into this dreadful state, it's quite a story. So uh, before we get too far into the book, can you just uh, let us know a little bit about yourself? Well, I was originally a journalist. Uh, I worked uh, for 20 years as a journalist on the Guardian newspaper for 10 years, on a weekly paper, a New Society, where I was uh, deputy editor for five years, briefly for the London Evening Standard as deputy editor and London columnist. Then uh, was freelancing, uh, set up something called the International Broadcasting Trust, was involved in some other um, uh, enterprises. But in 1982, I became involved with the Commonwealth. Uh, This was a turning point in my life. Effectively, I stopped being a journalist. I became deputy director of the former Commonwealth Institute in Kensington. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was an educational and cultural centre focused on today's Commonwealth of now 54 nations. And um, that introduced me to a new way of uh, life and a new way of thinking. I hadn't been terribly interested in the Commonwealth before that. I was very interested in Latin America. I'd written books about Brazil. And from 1982, however, um, I got very involved with the Commonwealth. And in 1989, I left that post, set up a pressure group called the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative, now based in New Delhi and uh, was involved in a big rainforest program in Guyana in the early 90s, um, uh, ran a human rights project um, concerned with the understanding of teenagers of human rights in uh, Botswana, India, Northern Ireland and Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. And uh, then in the late uh, 1990s set up a think tank, uh, the Commonwealth Policy Studies Unit at London University. It's now called the Commonwealth Advisory Bureau. Uh, But 
I'd therefore become quite involved in a series of Commonwealth um, activities and got to know quite a lot about the Commonwealth. This was an unusual thing for a British guy of my generation. Older people were very much involved in the Commonwealth at the time of decolonization, um, but younger people on the whole didn't know very much about the Commonwealth. I got interested in Zimbabwe um, not because I had lots of relations there or had traveled particularly to Zimbabwe, though I had gone there in about 1982 and again um, uh, uh, once or twice in the, in the 1990s. I was there for the famous Commonwealth Summit in Harare uh, in 1991 um, and went to a big human rights conference in 1999 organized by the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative. Um, but I did decide um, just two or three years ago that the story of the collapse of Zimbabwe was a really interesting story, as you said in your introduction, uh, and that it needed explanation, and that this was not a, a simple explanation. It wasn't just the evil of Robert Mugabe or the evil of colonialism or some simple uh, overarching explanation. And that's why I wanted to explore a history which went back even earlier than the Cecil Rhodes invasion with his pioneers at the, in the 18th 1980s, um, the cruelties of Lobangula, the um, uh, Indabeli ruler who uh, conquered the Shona people, um, and uh, in some senses, what we have seen in the last 20 or 30 years is a revenge mission. It's one explanation for what uh, the Shona ZANU-PF um, party has been about. Um, but I wanted to look at various things, including the relationship between Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and South Africa. Um, unfortunately, from the point of view of the outside world, and this was particularly the, the view from Britain and London, um, Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe was always an appendix to the South African story. Uh, in the colonial era, era, it was an appendix in terms of uh, a possible um, uh, British, English-speaking, um, Central African uh, uh, dominion. Um, during the post-colonial stage of Zimbabwe, uh, particularly in the 1980s, there was concern that nothing should happen in Zimbabwe that should upset the prospect of a peaceful transition uh, from apartheid in South Africa. So that's another kind of theme. And then themes of impunity and human rights abuse going right back, as I say, even before Cecil Rhodes. But the occupation and invasion by Cecil Rhodes involved great cruelty as well as racism. And uh, these, again, were kind of threads that ran all the way through. So I had a, a series of uh, issues I was inquiring into, as well as land occupation and, and things of that kind. But of course, if we, if we, if we look at the, the more familiar story, we're certainly going back to the, to the days of Cecil Rhodes coming in, Rhodesia, etc. Uh, and it was a very contested area of land before uh, Cecil Rhodes came in. Um, what is it back then that that, that, that that still resonates today? You're talking about a, a culture of violence, especially against the Shona people. Uh, what else? Well, I think, um, uh, and of course, more, more recently, the culture of violence has been against the Bailey. I mean, mm -hmm. the Gukurahundi massacres uh, in the um, uh, mid-1980s, which are thought to have uh, killed 10 to 20,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and in, in a sense, that was a revenge uh, of the... Um, 
majority grouping against a minority which had lorded o- over them uh, during the pre-colonial period. Can, can, can I just ask you about that? Is, is, is that a conscious memory of today? Of the Shona today. Yes, I think it is. I mean, or is it just an excuse? Well, it's an excuse too. It's an excuse too. Um, But I think um, historical memories are uh, quite uh, lively. I mean, one of the things that uh, I came across researching this book was the fact that um, many uh, people involved in the guerrilla warfare against Ian Smith's Rhodesian government had themselves been pushed off the land or their parents had been pushed off the land to make the way for white farms. Uh, And that was a grievance that um, kept them going, uh, you know, during the privations of a a guerrilla war. Um, So I think history is is quite alive. And um, I think in terms of the relationship between the two groupings, this was uh, a feature. Um, It was a justification uh, for the breakaway from um, Joshua Nkomo's uh, ZAPU of Robert Mugabe's ZANU uh, during the, um, quotes, liberation war, end quotes, Um, and also for some of the things that happened in the 1980s and even more recently. Going back to uh, one of the big dates that crops up again and again during the book, and you actually draw together a lot of themes at that particular point and say that this explains a lot of what happened afterwards. Uh, the Unilateral De- Declaration of Independence, UDI, it was 1963? Five, 65. 65. Okay, um, now that is, uh, can, you, can you just give us a potted history of, of how it came to that point? Because you, as you say, it's often seen as a bit of an appendage either to the, the, you know, the, the dominions of Central Africa or to the South, uh, South Africa itself. Yes, well... What led to UDI was, if you like, the collapse of the Central African Federation, which only lasted for 10 years um, and had really collapsed by 1962-63. And this brings in what we now think of as Zambia, Malawi, and Botswana? No, and Zimbabwe. Those were the three. Those were the three. As well as Zimbabwe. Uh, And it was a strange creation. Um, uh, The energy of people like Roy Walensky, Um, helped to create this and uh, Godfrey Huggins Um, because actually on the surface it wasn't a very good bet from the start the um, in terms of the white population it was minuscule in what was then Nyasaland what what is now Malawi Mm -hmm. it wasn't very much greater in Zambia um, than uh, northern Rhodesia it was only a really significant force in southern Rhodesia and um, however It was created um, partly uh, in opposition to the apartheid South Africa. After um, South Africa in 1948 um, changed from having the United Party of Jan Smuts uh, as uh, its leaders, uh, and they had been uh, allies of the British during the Second World War, Uh, And when the the arrival of the Afrikaner Nationalist Party, which contained many people who had admired Hitler uh, Mm -hmm. during the Second World War, um, uh, this was seen as an opportunity, really, by those like Walensky and Huggins, who were hoping to create a federation which would be a proto-dominion in Central Africa, um, a contrast to what was going on south, down south. And um, however, it was unpopular from the start. 
uh, in what is now Zambia and Malawi, particularly Malawi. And um, many chiefs and others and the nascent um, nationalist parties in those two countries uh, objected strongly, but it, they were kind of forced into it by mm -hmm. the colonial office and the British. And really, the um, Rhodesians, the white Rhodesians, were pulling the strings. Well, when the Federation broke up, there had been riots and there was a, a report uh, and uh, the British government recognised that the thing had come to an end. The question was, where did that leave southern Rhodesia, which started to call itself Rhodesia? Um, because the whites there felt that it was really demeaning if the black uh, populations in the two neighbouring territories had got independence. Independence was sweeping through Africa. The French and British empires were really withdrawing. And um, Ian Smith in particular uh, wanted the same kind of um, independence. And yet he was not prepared to concede majority African rule and basically said it would not happen in his lifetime, etc., etc. And um, the, uh, by 1965, there was a Labour government in London. It was more sympathetic to as African aspirations, less sympathetic to the whites than the Conservative government would have been. And the uh, result was um, a standoff between the two and Ian Smith declared unilateral uh, independence. This was not recognised. There were UN sanctions from the start. Um, the, uh, uh, there was a break break in relations uh, with neighbouring states, um, particularly, obviously, Zambia. And um, there was a, a, almost immediately um, the nationalist parties for Rhodesia, uh, Zapu and Nazanu, many of their leaders had been arrested, but almost immediately they started to plan a, a, a war. Mm -hmm. um, there had been... Uh, uh, Wars in Algeria, the, you know, the concept of, of uh, war to gain your freedom uh, was applying in the Portuguese colonies where there were rebellions going on. And so it took them a while to get started. And effectively, it wasn't for about five years before the um, Bush War really got going mm -hmm. in Rhodesia. But this is a point, UDI, where instead of taking one path, they embark upon another. And this, as you say, it radicalizes. Uh, it also has a big effect on the on the white minority. Uh, there's a quote here that I wanted to read out from the book itself, and that's what the Smith regime was fighting for with a bloody minded determination, which became increasingly ruthless as the war went on, was a pleasant white lifestyle supported by cheap labor and a number of illusions about the modern world. It does seem to be a bit of a, you know, a wishful hangover from the earlier colonial age and really fighting against the tide of, of history while at the same time burying problems that when they actually sprang on them a couple of decades later or less than a couple of decades later were far worse than if they'd been confronted and engaged at that point. I think that's absolutely right. I think there were a lot of illusions. These were people who... Um, willfully ignored what was going on in the rest of Africa. And uh, because they were having, by their lights, a good time, uh, they were um, 
they had their uh, African laborers. Normally, um, even in the towns, there was a sort of hutment out at the back where your staff lived. Uh, obviously, in the countryside, um, the African workers were working the, um, the land. Um, and by comparison with um, their white cousins in, in Britain at the same time, it was a superior lifestyle. I mean, there was a lot of uh, migration. That's right. There had been, um, particularly the, um, during the, after the uh, Second World War in Britain, when austerity uh, and um, severe problems in Britain uh, meant that a lot of uh, people did try to leave, um, Rhodesia was an attractive destination. And this continued also during the federa federal period in the 1950s. It was seen as this um, big uh, upcoming dominion. Uh, the, there was the um, Kariba Dam, uh, electricity was flowing. Uh, there was a lot of um, optimistic propaganda of quite a racist kind or a subtly racist mm -hmm. kind, um, which uh, encouraged um, incomers. Um, they were largely British still, uh, although there were some uh, Portuguese, some other um, migrants arrived. Uh, and interestingly, some Africana farmers came up to, mm. to farm. But, but basically, there was something um, specially British about Rhodesia, mm -hmm. uh, which distinguished it from South Africa, for example. Now, although you did mention that there were sanctions, etc., you also mention in the book that a lot of the sanctions weren't strictly followed, both outside Africa and regionally. Because if you look at a country like Zambia, it's you, landlocked, it's got uh, copper deposits, it needs access to the sea, etc. So, so basically, its economy was doing quite well. You also had the agricultural uh, products. You had a lot of farmers coming in with a lot of uh, knowledge um, and booming exports in things like tobacco. So it was quite a good place to be if you were white. That's right. Uh, I mean, there's a real distinction between being white and being black in that society. Uh, there were all kinds of restrictions on black people, effectively pass laws, uh, the life in the what have now been called high-density suburbs, but uh, they were basically the black quarters outside the white towns, were not good. Um, not a lot was, was done for them. And uh, in the countryside, the situation was, was very poor. How, how similar to apartheid South Africa was this? Because we're talking about the same periods. We are. And interestingly, I think after the... Um, uh, well, towards the end of the Federation period and after Smith came in, 64-65, uh, um, there was not really that much difference. Um, uh, one of the white uh, prime ministers, in a big gesture, insisted that Africans should not be called boy any longer, mm. which, of course, south of the border they were still being. But really, there wasn't that much difference, I think. And um, certainly restrictions on unions, restrictions on um, uh, freedom of association for Africans were quite tight. Um, the, uh, the way things were um, labeled was different um, south of the border. Uh, it was, but it was still um, a national security state in Rhodesia. Mm. And uh, there are two big personalities throughout the book. Obviously, we get to Mugabe uh, actually not that long from this point, but uh, uh, Ian Smith himself, 
his background was quite remarkable. He was an RAF airman during the Second World War. He uh, His plane was shot down and he lived among the partisans for five months or something in Italy. Um, can, and, and then he became a farmer in Rhodesia. I presume this was part of one of those migrations that you're talking about from, from Britain. Uh, can, can you fill in a few details of, of his background? Yes, I mean, he was um, an interesting, although rather narrow personality. Um, he uh, was very committed to the Rhodesian way of life, as he saw it. He was actually a monarchist. I mean, it was um, sort of quite as strange. As was Mugabe, almost. Indeed. Uh, and it, for him, it was quite strange when, as part of uh, UDI, they became a, a republic. Um, and he uh, was, I believe, quite a good farmer. Um, he was, um, uh, had he not been uh, in politics... Um, he would probably have been rather unremarkable. But I think his wartime experience had um, given him a taste of, of uh, responsibility and um, uh, the war shook up all kinds of people, of course. And I think he was one of those people who decided it was worth going into politics. Um, he was very fed up with the way in which um, the uh, leaders, Edgar White, Whitehead and the others, before um, himself... Uh, were leading, uh, he thought, the Federation either to a sort of doom of, of uh, black control or just were rather feeble. And he thought that it was time somebody stood up, stood up against the British, stood up against uh, the black um, uh, uh, political parties. And um, he was... Uh, what he didn't realise, I think, was that he was basically putting his head into a noose and that although it might look okay from about 1965 to about 1970, after 1970, things got steadily worse. There was a moment uh, when um, they might have been able to, to do a deal, but he was irreconcilable and was simply not prepared to um, uh, allow for an African majority. And in the meantime, violence is getting worse in neighbouring countries such as uh, Mozambique, and violence is getting worse. It's actually becoming a full-blown civil war. We're quite familiar uh, now. It's pretty easy to pick up books like Alexandra Fuller's yeah. uh, memoirs of, of growing up as a child during the Rhodesian or Zimbabwe Rhodesian civil war. Um, but can you can you give us a little bit more of a picture of what, what life was like for both sides at that point? Well, I think um, looking at it, first of all, from the guerrillas' side... Uh, Joshua Nkomo and, the, and Zapu were a conventionally trained force and they were based in Zambia. The um, Rhodesians uh, bombed uh, Lusaka several times. Um, uh, Joshua Nkomo, a very large man, had to run pretty fast and, you know, one stage was supposed to have crept through a small lavatory window to escape <laughs> at one such attack. Um, the, also, there were constant um, uh, fightings between the guerrilla groups, and um, particularly this was true of the, um, uh, of the Zandler um, army, which was the army of um, uh, ZANU, uh, the Robert Mugabe party. Um, it was quite factionalized, and one of the problems was that their leaders were actually in jail in, in Harare, in uh, Salisbury, as it then was, or uh, within um, uh, Rhodesia. So the leadership went to um, uh, groups of people who weren't necessarily very politically aware. 
Um, Herbert Chitepo, uh, who was the um, outside leader for ZANU, um, was killed. And um, Josh, Josh, uh, Tongagara, the military leader, um, was a man of very little education, very charismatic with his troops, but perhaps not um, on top of the politics. Uh, and um, it was a, 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 a bad scene, really. And there were constant sort of mergers and breakaways and, and shootings. And some after Ch Chitepo's assassination, um, Zambia's leader, uh, KK, Kenneth Kaunda, tried to crack down hard on ZANU. And ZANU was sort of rescued by the um, collapse of the Portuguese empire and the arrival of Frei Limo as con uh, controlling a uh, very similar Marxist, Chinese-leading, a uh, leaning party. Uh, and at that stage, really, um, ZANU moved out of Zambia and was reliant on support from um, uh, Mozambique and Tanzania. So can you put your finger on what it was that at this point um, moved them towards having to call elections and actually bringing in the blacks, the black majority? Well, it's very interesting. I think looking at it on the uh, Smith side, by about 19... 77, 78, um, they were suffering. Uh, it wasn't so much that the sanctions had become much more effective, although they had, uh, because Mozambique was refusing to, to play and they had joined the, the sanctions regime. It was more to do with war weariness amongst the whites. Um, they, uh, more of them were going south, escaping the war, uh, the um, call-ups were becoming more frequent. Uh, they were becoming uh, more dependent on um, uh, black soldiers. And the, uh, some of the farms on the frontiers were being abandoned. Uh, and altogether, the, what was, a, in a sense, a crazy thing, you know, because of the uh, uh, small white population and the uh, ideology that they were fighting for was, was shot through with holes, um, uh, it became really impossible by the late 70s. And the first sign of that was the internal settlement, uh, the agreement b between Smith and Abel Musarewa and other, quotes, internal leaders uh, to establish what was called Zimbabwe Rhodesia. And at that point, a lot of the whites said, well, what are we really fighting for now? Well, as you said, there was a great draw of this lifestyle. That's right. That's right. I mean, and yet... Uh, that was, um, you know, at a certain point, uh, was the game worth the candle, I think. And that was the thought going through uh, the, um, the whites, even those who are most uh, supportive of Ian Smith. When elections are finally called, voting almost naturally follows ethnic lines. And Zimbabwe, as it was soon to become, ends up with a prime minister who was a, 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 an avowed Marxist and a guerrilla fighter for many, many years. Uh, that's Robert Mugabe. Obviously, no assessment of, of how Zimbabwe ended up as it did uh, can go without a, a bit of an examination of, of, of this man. So can you give us a little bit of an insight into where he came from and, yes. and a bit more? Yes, I mean, he came um, from a broken family. His father had deserted when he was very young. Um, he was his mother's favorite child. 
he had a, a good Jesuit education. Um, he then was radicalized, not only by seeing the um, uh, African opposition to the imposed uh, federation and feeling that in southern Rhodesia they were having a particularly bad time, but his time in um, Kwame Nkrumah's uh, Ghana, mm -hmm. where he met his first wife, Sally, and he um, uh, in, went through sort of ideological training as well as training to be a teacher in Ghana. Uh, he was there at a moment of high excitement. Um, independence was being won, um, and this was the first black uh, sub-Saharan uh, country to have its independence. And it was all very exciting. And the contrast between that and what was going on back home in Salisbury, where African nationalists were being arrested, they couldn't have their demos, etc., etc., was very um, striking. And for a, a bright guy like Mugabe, um, the only game in town was the, the nationalist one. And um, at the same time, there was a cert certain intellectual and personal ruthlessness um, and he uh, was involved in a, an attempted coup against um, Joshua Nkomo. It didn't work first time round, but then it did. And they set up uh, ZANU. Uh, he was then, um, uh, he then came to the fore in ZANU. Uh, the um, leader of, of ZANU had been probably, um, if not turned by a stool pigeon, certainly he'd been. Um, uh, had suffered uh, as a result of his imprisonment. And um, Mugabe's de absolute determination uh, for the independence of um, Zimbabwe, his absolute determination to go the uh, military way, uh, his total unwillingness to compromise with either um, Joshua Nkomo or anybody mm -hmm. else, these things actually helped him and um, there was a sort of slightly wobbly period after he uh, got back, got out of um, uh, Rhodesia in the late 70s uh, and was interned by uh, Samora Michelle for a while mm. in Mozambique um, because Samora was um, seeing whether there was a possibility of a peaceful solution at that time, which actually there wasn't. But um, it was when uh, Mugabe was interviewed by the BBC and turned up at one of these um, conferences in Geneva, which actually didn't go anywhere, but he established his own leadership. And he won his leadership in these rather difficult circumstances in the late 70s by apparently listening to everybody and not really being in the, in, in the pocket of anybody, being um, apparently quite democratic mm. uh, in the way he treated the sort of di different factions with Z within ZANU. And um, I think it was, uh, and initially after he won the election, he was deeply suspicious of the British, deeply suspicious of the Commonwealth, thought that everything was going to conspire against him actually winning those elections in April 1980. But when he did, he was almost overwhelmed by the responsibility and um, initially uh, he um, was prepared to let um, Nkomo be a sort of a ceremonial president and all of this kind of thing. Um, but actually, um, the ruthlessness came out pretty quickly. Mm. And um, We've already spoken about the, indeed, the massacres. Indeed. So um, there was a lot of goodwill 
shall we say, about Zimbabwe's future. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why so few people spoke up about some of the things that were evidently going wrong already. We talked about the massacres, and I think you write in the book that Sweden was the only country that, that kicked up any sort of fuss whatsoever. And uh, so we carry on this road. Uh, and one thing that struck me in the book was that you said that the biggest disaster that befell the Zimbabwean government was actually the end of apartheid just south, just across the border in South Africa, uh, and the emergence of Mandela, obviously, quite a different figure. Uh, can you explain a, a little bit about that? Because that actually fills in a few of the gaps, so we don't have to go into too many details for the 80s. Absolutely. Um, it, was a, uh, it was the opposite of what one might have expected. Uh, I think um, during the uh, 80s, uh, Zimbabwe was the, the beacon of liberation. Uh, it was the big contrast to um, South Africa, just as the uh, British government had hoped that the Federation would be the big contrast to uh, South Africa. But of course, when in 1994, uh, there is a free election in South Africa, uh, we get all the world's interests switched from Zimbabwe to um, South Africa. Uh, there is this charismatic old man who'd been in prison much longer than um, uh, Robert Mugabe, who amazingly was not embittered by the experience, uh, who tours the world, wears crazy shirts, and um, becomes a sort of popular icon. Whereas the rather withdrawn, introverted Robert Mugabe felt all of his glory was being stolen. Um, and it wasn't just a matter of personalities either. It was also a matter of the two very different parties. The ZANU-PF was, uh, in its origin, uh, a um, centralised, uh, top-down Marxist party, whereas the ANC, with all its faults and its variations, had actually had a long, peaceful um, and thoroughly frustrating life as a um, campaigning organisation for black South Africans. And uh, so there were two diff quite different political traditions here. Um, furthermore, economically, um, the uh, end of apartheid was bad news for Zimbabwe. At once, um, the uh, barriers came down, uh, cheap South African goods swept over the border, knocking out particularly the textile business in um, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, threatening uh, the mining and agricultural uh, produce. Altogether, the rather strange protected um, economy of Zimbabwe, which had really been a carryover from the protected um, Ian Smith economy, uh, was exposed to the full gale of a much stronger, bigger kind of economic machine. And so um, at various levels, and in terms of political prestige within Africa, um, as well as on the international stage, um, Robert Mugabe suffered a severe downer. And uh, as I mentioned in the book, probably the worst moment for him personally was his second wedding mm -hmm. when um, uh, Mandela turned up and everybody, uh, far from being interested in the groom, was interested in the great man who'd uh, turned up for the wedding. Exactly. I think Mugabe's personality then uh, starts to play a, a large role, um, but not as large as the economy. Uh, obviously, Mugabe and the, the ZANU-PF uh, uh, party creates this culture of violence. 
but it's the economy going wrong in the background that starts to accelerate things because then there are moves into areas such as uh, although it's always been an issue as you as you make pains to point out land um, and certainly was an issue at independence land suddenly becomes an even bigger issue uh, groups such as the army which is in a sense almost bought off uh, with uh, you know excursions into the the war in Demo- democratic republican of congo uh, and the war vets uh, again a, a very very dynamic force that that had a political voice they're all actually feeding into this idea uh, in, into this big problem of uh, failing economy and it's um uh, it's it's mugabe's attempt to, to kind of draw this all together that, that, that starts creating more problems. Can, can you just uh, explain a little bit about how this all goes wrong? Yes, I think the really bad year was 1997. And it was the year when the government made unaffordable payoffs to the war vets. They simply couldn't afford the payments that were made at that time. Um, and it coincided also with the government getting involved in the Congo War, um, and that also had, was completely unbudgeted. The theory was that the Congo War would pay for itself. Um, absolutely, it did not. Uh, and so uh, an economy which um, had not been fantastic, um, but had been perfectly stable, was, if you like, hit by the South African competition after 1994, and then really serious government errors, uh, Robert Mugabe at the center, um, in about 1997 onwards. And there was a moment when the um, Zimbabwe dollar plunged in value. Uh, There was this first resort to the printing press for um, the currency. And um, as things uh, went worse, there was a Uh, Robert Mugabe had hoped at the 1997 um, Commonwealth Summit in Edinburgh that he would be able to get some more money out of the British on some kind of compensation deal. But Tony Blair um, and Claire Short were completely uninterested. Uh, Claire Short said, you know, I come from an Irish background. We were colonized too. You know, it's all a long way away. Uh, Why should we still be paying? And all of that kind of thing. It, It just rubbed salt into the wounds. And um, so uh, in, there was also a lot of public resentment within Zimbabwe. And this was uh, led by probably three different agencies. The trade unions, mm-hmm. uh, Morgan Changarai was the leader of those. Uh, civil society, a lot of bodies had come into existence concerned with a whole range of things, including women's rights, human rights, all kinds of things, in the, as a result of the educational um, expansion in the 80s and, and 90s. And then thirdly, from the churches, which, for example, carried out a forensic examination of the deaths in Gukurahundi. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was, uh, all that stuff was published in the, in the mid-90s. So there was internal opposition, and the government began to look a bit wobbly. Um, and uh, in the year 2000, there were elections and um, uh, the government did badly and uh, Mugabe decided to reach for the war vets and, and land occupations mm. uh, as a way of, of um, satisfying his supporters, uh, bashing his old opponents, the white farmers, who had indeed been the very core of Ian Smith's support, although the actual people had turned over a lot since 1980. You know, mm-hmm. this, this was you know, 20 years later. Um, and uh, the economy went into a nosedive. Uh, it was not continuous. Things went up and down. Uh, but basically, it was going down. 
And of course, the Nadir year was 2008, uh, when Mugabe lost the election and uh, then uh, launched this punitive uh, second round uh, in which um, Morgan Changrai, his opponent, had to withdraw after hundreds of his people had been killed mm. and many others had actually left the country uh, by that stage. Um, but th- you're right, I think, in saying that the, the key thing that went wrong was the economy and that it actually went wrong a little bit before the big land invasions um, things were already, um, uh, the, the government was not able to pay for what it was trying to do. I think that this whole period says a lot about attitudes both within Africa and, and about Africa because during the 1980s, as we said, so much was forgiven or, or a blind eye was turned to what was actually going on in Zimbabwe by well-meaning foreigners, I suppose you might describe them as, whereas suddenly in, the, uh, in, in, in this more violent period, especially with the land occupations, you start to get a lot of white victims. And again, that suddenly seems to attract so much more international opinion, uh, opprobrium. And also on top of this, you also have the the uh, the, the, uh, the attitudes of uh, Zimbabwe's neighbours, which I think was, is also an issue that, that pops up in your book. Yes, I think there are different things that are going on here. One is that obviously after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of East European communism, a lot of the uh, practical um, supports for the kind of uh, African socialist one-party states uh, fell away. And there was um, a rather hubristic moment for particularly the United States, I think, uh, the um, sort of final victory of capitalism and all this kind Mm. of thing, uh, and bringing in its wake um, a concern for human rights and and, um, uh, democracy, not necessarily imposed, as happened a little bit later. But um, all of these sort of movements in the international arena um, did uh, impact, particularly on um, uh, the better educated Zimbabweans in in the towns. Um, within the immediate neighbourhood, uh, also uh, changes um, in uh, uh, the the end of the war in um, uh, Mozambique. Uh, the um, uh, re- uh, that happened in uh, 1992. Uh, the uh, Namibia had got its independence two years before that. Um, there was a sort of lightening up, if you like. Um, which uh, I think also um, affected uh, the situation inside Zimbabwe. Um, but I think uh, the, the, the key thing really is, uh, although um, there were you know, some changes of attitude uh, inside um, Zimbabwe, they didn't really affect the inner core of ZANU-PF, which thought that they had won a a war of liberation and they were entitled to rule for all time. So to draw the whole story to to an end, or at least bring it up to to the present, because there's so much more of the story still to come, no doubt, um, we end up with uh, with a kind of um, compromise government, which which brings in elements of uh, Morgan Changarai's um, movement for democratic change. Um, I'd like you to to do two things, almost in conclusion. One of which is to uh, is to kind of identify exactly where things went wrong. 
Um, and as we've discussed throughout the interview, there's quite a few areas that you could pinpoint. And the second thing is, uh, is just give us some kind of evaluation of whether you think there are, there, there's any cause for optimism. Well, where did things go wrong? I've identified a number of different causes. Obviously, the nature of British colonialism in that part of Africa. Um, obviously, the um, uh, nature of ZANU as a uh, governing party, which had won the election in 1980 and has remained effectively in power ever since. A third is the um, actual uh, nature of Robert Mugabe, unlike Nelson Mandela, who only served one term as president. Robert Mugabe is still there, uh, having taken um, authority, although he wasn't president, the system was different, uh, taken authority in uh, 1980. So we're now talking over 30 years. And um, uh, I think also the... Um, a uh, way in which the uh, Zimbabwean um, economy has um, has changed, really. It's, it's um, large numbers of people are um, unemployed, uh, although there has been a Morangi diamond find. Um, it's not had the sort of breakout that um, countries like Mozambique have had with their oil and gas. Uh, it's um, it's still a country uh, with much lower agricultural output uh, than it had in the 1970s, and um, where a lot, a of, lot of that is still hungry. And a lot of that's to do with the mismanagement that we've spoken absolutely, about. Absolutely, absolutely. But in terms of a rather more optimistic take, you know, um, the book is a hindsight book. It's trying to explain what went wrong. So it's not in the rather difficult and often um, <laughs> uh, foolish business of uh, prognostication. But um, I think that what is um, perhaps interesting is that rather below the surface and from a very low base, there is some economic revival. There are, is some improvement in social services. It's not all that great but it, particularly in the education and health sectors, there has been improvement, although still things like electricity supply, sewage collection uh, are not um, uh, up to the standards that they were under Ian Smith. Um, so, you know, there are many um, things that are, are still in a poor state. But what I think is interesting about Zimbabwe is that it does actually have um, now a more vibrant uh, press, uh, its civil society, although badly battered over the last 20 years, is still there and quite diverse. Uh, it does have a two-party system, which is quite unusual in Africa, um, which I think will, uh, if there is a, a freer system, uh, that will continue. I don't see ZANU dying. Um, mm -hmm. It will continue. It has some genuine strengths. Um, even though I personally believe that in any free election for the last 12 years, the MDC would have won, mm -hmm. even though the MDC itself split in, in 2005. So I think, um, and there are people with a genuine understanding of um, uh, the rule of law and human rights, even though they can't operate it. I think the negatives are more to do with the something for nothing um, culture, which uh, was spot, uh, stimulated by the farm invasions, but actually has applied to the indigenization idea and a number of other things that you can just grab stuff. And um, the way in which some of uh, Robert Mugabe's 
Zanu cronies have grabbed farms and other things um, is not a good example uh, for the population at large. So, I mean, I, I'm not hugely optimistic, but I think uh, in a way this rather odd period um, since 2009 with the so-called unity government, which is very dis disunited, um, with um, Mugabe himself now very old, uh, many of his cronies dying off, has allowed a certain kind of um, uh, period of uh, recovery and maybe intellectual recovery as well as economic and social recovery. And let's not forget that South Africa is doing quite well economically. Uh, Mozambique is obviously um, starting from a low base, but that's doing well as well. And uh, Zimbabwe does have a lot of natural attributes, even, and it is, of course, starting at a low base. So maybe, maybe there is some cause for, uh, for for a bit of optimism there. Uh, can I just finish the the interview with a, a question that I've, I've, uh, always brings out an interesting answer, and that is: um, Have you got a favourite place in Africa? That's a really difficult question, especially because I didn't warn you about it. No, I I really don't know. I mean, I have um, been. Uh, Many years ago, I think in 1982, I visited Victoria Falls and went on the, the river there, the River Zambezi. Mm -hmm. uh, that was very beautiful. Uh, I think um, in terms of, of countries um, that I visited in Africa, my favorite would be Mozambique, mm -hmm. partly because I can speak some Portuguese. Uh, and I was um, very sympathetic to Frei Limo during the... Um, Liberation War, and I've visited much more recently, uh, and that's a favourite place for me. Um, did, did you ever visit Ilha de Mozambique? No, I haven't done. My, my wife and I visited there. It's extraordinary. Yes. It really is a quite extraordinary relic of, of Port uh, centuries Port of, of Portuguese rule. Yes. So. Yes. No, I would like to go there, but I haven't yet. But you know, there are plenty of opportunities in the future. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming in, Richard Bourne. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Richard Bourne, the author of Catastrophe, What Went Wrong in Zimbabwe, a sobering book about a country's downward descent from such a promising position and a story with lessons for much of the rest of the region to learn from. This is Nicholas Walton wishing you a good day from here in London. Mm -hmm.